Welcome to StoryWise, the podcast designed to give you the in-depth story behind some of our top storytellers as a way to inform, motivate, and inspire you to believe that you too can make your dreams a reality. My name is Jen Grisanti. I am a story career consultant at Jen Grisanti Consultancy, Inc., a writer's consultancy designed to help you accomplish your writing goals and reach your career destination through one-on-one consults, seminars, and teleseminars. And I am thrilled to have with me as my guest today, Christopher Vogler. And I know many of you are thrilled that I have Christopher here as my guest today. So let me tell you a little bit about Chris Vogler. Chris is a Hollywood story career consultant, best known for his guide for screenwriters, The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers, which actually has three editions now, as well as his memo from the story department, Both books are published by Michael Wheezy Productions. And let me tell you what Wikipedia says about Chris's career. Vogler has worked for Disney Studios, Fox 2000 Pictures, and Warner Brothers in the development department. He has also taught in the USC School of Cinema Television, Division of Animation and Digital Arts, as well as UCLA Extension. He is president of the company StoryTech Literary Consulting. Uh, Education, Vogler studied filmmaking at the USC School of Cinema Television. Yay, go Trojans! The alma mater for George Lucas, as with Lucas, Vogler was inspired by the writings of mythologist Joseph Campbell, particularly the hero with a thousand faces. Vogler used Campbell's work to create the now legendary seven-page company memo for Hollywood screenwriters, a practical guide to the hero with a thousand faces. Vogler later developed his memo into the late 1990s book, The Writer's Journey, Mythic Structure for Writers. Uh, The Writer's Journey, Christopher Vogler, has become one of the cornerstones of modern screenwriting theory based on influential memo that he wrote, and I'm very excited to get into that, for Disney Studios. The book has been translated into eight languages, and its ideas were promptly put to use by a whole generation of screenwriters and novelists. As a consultant for Hollywood Studios, he has helped to guide the stories of many successful films as different as The Wrestler, Black Swan, The Lion King, Fight Club, and The Thin Red Line. As a leading theorist on story structure and as an experienced Hollywood professional, He is in a unique position to share his insights with teaching story around the world. Chris actually just got back from Italy. Actually, I'd love to start with that, like kind of because I love that, first of all, I love your career and I bow down to you because you speak a language that I think resonates with everyone and it's a gift. So I'm very honored to be interviewing you, first of all. Um, I would love for you to give us some sense of what your experience in Italy was like. Well, I'm just on a, a great roll now. It's great to be here, by the way, and thank you for, for all that. 
Um, but it, it's a real joy for me at this stage to be uh, traveling around. And uh, this year I've already been to Paris and Stockholm and uh, will be going later to uh, uh, possibly Moscow and uh, London and Mexico City. So I, I'm, I'm really on a, a great uh, role right now, getting into other cultures and finding out what's going on there and what their young filmmakers are interested in and uh, sharing. It's a two-way street, and this is something I try to get across everywhere I go. We have things to teach them about the way we do it in Hollywood, and my specific thing, which is this myth-inspired approach to structure and character, but uh, we also have a lot to learn from them, and uh, you know, many of our TV shows, some of our best stuff is derived from things that were generated in other cultures, and uh, we owe them a lot, and uh, even though some of their film uh, industry are uh, struggling right now, as ours is, to get its bearings in this new world of uh, technology. Um, they, they still have an awful lot to, uh, to t teach us about life and about different ways of seeing the world. So I'm, I'm excited to be in this phase. Yay. And I, I totally agree with you. I, I, I returned from Israel, as we were talking about before the interview, and I think it, it is fascinating to be in a position to absorb and have exposure to story on a global level and recognize like how different cultures see the world differently and yeah. it, it makes us deeper i think in the way that we see our own lives yeah i'm, I'm confronted all the time by a reality that there are, are two ways of sort of uh, absorbing these differences you know there's there's in one sense all the stories are the same. All, all the uh, storytelling cultures are united because there are certain fundamental human things just like the human skeleton and nervous system are uh, pretty much the same everywhere. But then there are the fascinating differences, and that's a great thing to embrace and, and understand. And one thing I'm uh, saying these days as I visit these other cultures is please don't stop being whatever you are. So don't in, in your effort to try to compete in the world market, don't stop being Israeli. Don't stop being yes. Portuguese. Don't stop being Excellent French advice. or Italian, South Italian, whatever it happens to be, because the world, you know, needs those unique viewpoints. And especially young people mm -hmm. need to be represented. Their culture, their particular uh, local accent, the birds of that country, the local architecture, all those things need to be up there on the screen for young people to feel that they're part of it, that they're represented. And and this is actually a, a beef of mine because I'm from the Midwest. I'm from St. Louis. And St. Louis is never represented in mm -hmm. movies. If it is, they, they take one shot of the arch or some landmark there, and uh, then everything else could be shot anywhere. Usually it's shot in Canada. And uh, so I don't hear my local accent. There is a unique St. Louis accent. I don't see the local architecture, brick architecture, and uh, I don't hear the local birds. So in some sense, my culture, the world I grew up in, is not represented, and, and I, I, I miss that. So I love that you said that because their culture defines their voice, and their voice is what separates them and what we want to see. So yeah, I, and, I think right. that I love that you said that. 
Okay, so starting with your love of story, at what point in your life would you say you became enamored with story? Well, that that was pretty <laughs> early because uh, I was lucky in the, the simple thing that my mother and my grandmother read fairy tales to me and, and made a big deal out of it and also – uh, the house was always filled with books, and there was oh, a lot of that. obvious respect for authors and writing. So that was ingrained in me pretty early. But I loved, as a little kid, five years old, listening to those fairy tales and using them as a sort of a laboratory in my mind to th- wonder, well, what if there were giants? And what if you could become invisible by putting on a cap or something? And uh, you know, what if there were these other worlds with fairies and so forth? And just that what if impulse yeah. was uh, one of the things that, that uh, got me started on, on this road. And what would you say is the most um, valuable thing that you love about telling story? Well, I think it's the the power of the imagination, and that was something that impressed me very much as a kid. I remember really well uh, reading some story about giants, and then uh, the next day I was sort of daydreaming and looking out the window at a big tree in our backyard, and I suddenly had a flash of what if a giant was there and it was as big as that tree? And I actually scared myself. My imagination was so strong, I could see that giant striding towards my house. And um, I was, you know, shocked by it and uh, taken aback. And then I laughed and realized, wow, this is really powerful. This uh, story engine or this imagination uh, ability is uh, is something great to uh, to play with. So. I love that you can see that with a child's mind, like mm-hmm. recognize the gift at an early age. I yeah. think that that definitely demonstrates uh, how much story has. I would say for you, it certainly feels like when I listen to you teach, and I have for many many years now, it, you you have an intuitive sense. Yeah, there, there is something I think that I experience pretty directly in the organs of my body, which mm-hmm. is a big issue for me right now that I'm promoting and trying to understand. Is how do the images that we see on the screen? things that we read in stories, how do they have an effect on the actual organs of our body to Mm -hmm. cause us to tear up, uh, to cry, uh, to choke up with emotion, uh, to shiver, actually physically shiver in fear just because of something we've seen or read, or to burst out laughing or any of these other uh, reactions. Uh, I'm just very interested in, in that sort of direct chain from the image to the organs of the body to producing those uh, those uh, enjoyable effects. I love that. I love that you, and we'll go, I'll talk about that. I mm-hmm. love that you taught toward that in your webinar for the writer's store, which I was fascinated by because of the chakras, because of polarity. Mm-hmm. I loved what you taught on polarity. So I'm, I definitely want to get into that. And I know that's in your third edition yes. of the writer's journey, which I think is just spectacular. So starting with the idea of the writer's journey and Joseph Campbell, at what point did that connection start? Well, you know, for a long time as a kid, um, I just noticed that um, certain kinds of movies almost literally made me vibrate, that uh, I I would wiggle or or be excited like a, uh, a happy puppy or something. Uh, when I saw certain kinds of films. For me, they were mostly 
the adventure films, uh, science fiction and fantasy and, uh, you know, anything with horses and swords and castles. I loved all that stuff. And it really, you know, made me shake and, and vibrate. So I was looking for that and looking for the unwritten rules as I went to journalism school and then to film school. And I went through a period of time in the Air Force making documentary films. The whole time I was looking for the unwritten rules. And I said, there must be some guidebook or some code to crack the, the mystery of how do you start a story and where do you end it and what do you put in and emphasize and what do you leave out and you know, the, these essential things, uh, and there wasn't anything. There were right. no guidebooks. There were no screenwriting books, very little theory about it. So I was looking. And then in film school at USC, I mentioned something about myths in a class that I'd seen some mythic icon I thought I saw in a film. And the professor said, oh, if you're interested in, in myths in movies, go to the library and, and get this book and pointed me to the hero with a thousand faces. And it was the, the best thing that happened academically to me was that professor pointing me to that book because there it was. Yes. There was the guide book that I had been looking for. And uh, Joseph Campbell wasn't thinking specifically about movies. He was looking at a body of myths and fairy tales and uh, legends but uh, he had found the skeletal structure. And, mm -hmm. you know, I had been trying to piece it together, and it was like I had one tooth and a, a knuckle bone or something right. of some dinosaur. <laughs> but he had the whole skeleton laid out and articulated and fleshed out and animated so you could see the whole thing very clearly. And I could see this works for movies. It was, right. That really jumped out at me uh, the, the, the first weekend that I thumbed through that book. I said, this is great for movie storytelling. And so I had the impulse to find out more and also get talking with other people about it. So I wrote a paper for a class at the time that Star Wars came out, the first Star Wars, and obviously had been influenced by Campbell. So I wrote a paper trying to explain all that, the, the connection between Campbell and Star Wars. I love it. And that became the foundation of everything yeah. else. That that turned into a memo that I wrote when I was working for the Disney yes, Company 10 years later. Yes, we have to get into the memo. Yeah. 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 So that was, that was all, you know, out of this impulse to just, uh, I wanted to run down the street and tell people, there's this great thing I found, and don't you want to talk about it? And, oh, you know, let's Let's share that. that. So. There was there was that uh, social impulse to want to get other people talking about this thing that I thought was useful. Yeah, that I think is fascinating. I think what's fascinating about that when you talk about vibration yeah. and the fact that at the time that it fell into your lap, which I think is the beautiful gift of story, that when we need things the most, they suddenly appear. That's for sure. Yeah, and I I think the fact that you knew you wanted a structure. And it came to you, and and it was the impetus for so much of what was going to happen in your life and your career. So yeah, and I want to uh, make note of something you've said here about uh, how things come to you. You mm -hmm. know, as part of my job, and I'm sure your job too, we have to read and evaluate a lot of scripts, a lot of material, and working for a studio. Sometimes you're kind of a gatekeeper and you have to say no a lot. But the beautiful little secret of that is that every once in a while I'd say no to a script. It's not right for us. It's not well-developed enough. But there would be one 
sentence in that script, which was exactly what I needed in my life at that moment. So I felt gratitude to the writers. I felt like, you don't know it, buddy, but you have actually helped me or changed somebody's life. And it's never maybe going to get made into a movie, but your writing has impact. And it has impact beyond what you would normally think, you know, and and so people should be uh, aware of that as they write, that it has a radiating impact and and can touch people way beyond your expectations. I agree. I think that is an excellent point. I'm I'm happy that you pointed that out because I I remember when I went through a divorce uh, many, many years ago and the big spec script of the year was Ally McBeal. Mm. And I remember sitting in my office and pouring through these Ally McBeals and feeling like, oh, my God, like they know me. They understand my pain. (laughs) You know, and I remember just thinking, like, what an incredible gift. And the same thing with books appearing when you need them the most, which which is another thing that ties in with what you're saying. Um, okay, so the memo. We have to get to the yeah. famous memo. So when you where were you at 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 the point that you wrote the memo? Like obviously you could never have had an idea of just what an impact that was gonna have on your entire future. But like I, I always am curious about what is the trigger. Yeah. That leads to that. Well, actually, there was an inkling that this was going to do something. Um, I I, there that. was an intention. Okay. I, I made an intention to okay. sort of target uh, this thing and use it as an early form of what we now everybody talks about branding. It right. was a, the beginning of, of sort of branding myself. Right. Because at this time, I had been working for the studios as a story analyst, I was in the union, there was a union for this. And uh, I'd been working for eight years or so for different studios, and I ended up at, at Disney, and I felt I needed to differentiate myself from the others. There, were, there was a staff of 10 or 12 people there, and there's maybe 150 people doing this in the union and thousands doing it uh, in other capacities throughout uh, Hollywood and the world. So uh, how could I distinguish myself? So I thought, well, I'll take this... Joseph Campbell idea, and I'll develop it, and and I'll really put it into some form that's useful, because at the studios, the memo form was Mm -hmm. the way that you communicated and tried to persuade people. Okay. And so I uh, took time off from work, actually, and uh, developed this idea into a seven-page memo, and Uh I had this intention that It would go out uh, that I would make copies at this time on uh, Xerox and uh, uh, the fax machines. Uh, So I I really intended for those to be like little robots that would go out uh, and and do uh, micro-machine work for me. And that's pretty much how it turned out. The copies of it got distributed. Uh, It sort of became an early form of a virus that went through the whole Hollywood brain. Right. And um, I I knew I had hit on something, especially when people started plagiarizing. Yes. Then then I knew I really had something. Let's go into that. Was there one in particular person or several? Yeah, there was more than one. But uh, there was one instance at at Disney where I I kind of set myself up for it because – I um, left a copy deliberately on a Xerox machine, on on the the glass of the Xerox machine, because I knew 
uh, I would always check the glass to see did somebody leave any interesting documents, and I found lots of interesting things that way in my espionage uh, uh, (laughs) tendencies. Yeah. But uh, I sort of reverse engineered that, and I left a copy on purpose, and somebody found it, some executive found it, and took the cover page off and put his name on it and submitted it to the top management of Disney. He had a little more nerve than I did and, and submitted it up the chain. And it became a little bit of a sensation in the in the studio. This was when Jeffrey Katzenberg was the head of production, uh-huh. and uh, he made a fuss about it at a meeting and said, "This is really good. This is uh, what we need right now." And so he directed everybody to look at this memo. And I, enough copies had gone out that people immediately noticed it and informed me, "Hey, somebody's uh, ripped you off." So uh, I. Stuck my neck out, and I wrote a letter to Katzenberg. Right. And I sort of claimed my birthright, and I said, I'm the guy who wrote that memo. And uh, he, I heard back from him uh, amazingly quickly, and he said, you're right, and uh, I think you ought to get deeper into the company, so go work with the animation people. And that was at the time they were developing The Lion King. And so wow. yeah, I walked in just at the moment that that was uh, starting to, to come online. And found that I didn't have to sell them on the idea. They already knew about the hero's journey, the 12 stages that I had created to describe what normally happens in uh, classic story form. And uh, so it was uh, a happy time when uh, everything fell into place. So uh, The Lion King was an opportunity to test, to test those ideas and uh, one that I got quite deeply involved in. So. Oh, I think that is fantastic. That gives me goosebumps, so I love that. Um, so you've contributed to films like The Wrestler, Black Swan, The Lion King, Fight Club, and the film Red Line. Tell us about how you worked in your creative process with these films. Yeah, I have to say, uh, uh, The Black Swan, I don't think I uh, uh, affected directly as much as as some of the others, but Mm -hmm. maybe indirectly, because uh, the director there, uh, Darren Aronofsky, who also did uh, The Wrestler, and is now directing a a Bible picture uh, about Noah's Ark, uh, actually, that's in development. Uh, He's one who uh, apparently studied my uh, books in, in college, and adopted it and uses it, uh, my outline, the mm-hmm. Hero's Journey outline, in uh, just about everything he does. Oh, so he, he, he tells me that he puts his crew and uh, cast through reading the, that material and uh, tries to outline everything uh, just to give him a starting point. You know, right. He says there are many ways you could do it, uh, many different techniques to use, but this is one that he finds uh, realistic and, and helpful. So... Um, that's and, and in answer to your question, how do I work with people in situations like that? Uh, normally, they've already developed something pretty thoroughly when mm-hmm. I see it. And they typically will have some feeling, we just know something's missing or something's wrong. Or, you know, they, they will show it to audiences and audiences will say, well, we like it, but we don't quite get the ending or they're just not satisfied for some reason. So they come to me and I will, if I'm in good form, I'll diagnose it uh-huh. and I'll prescribe. I'll diagnose what I think the problem is, what's missing, and then I'll give three or four suggestions about how they might fix it and hope that uh, they won't do any of those suggestions, but that they'll come up with something even better, but, you know, guided by what I've suggested. I, I love that, and I, I think that it is fascinating when you come up with the structure and then you constantly test it against and you recognize the value 
with every story that is told well that you see versus story that maybe doesn't work as well as it could. Yeah, I'm just thinking, um, you know, in getting to the point where I was able to write the book, I had read and analyzed something like 10,000 screenplays, literally 10,000 screenplays. Uh, And then in in the course of my career, uh, probably another 10,000. So I'm up around 20,000 now. But there was a big breakthrough for me um, in just one project. I worked uh, for about four and a half months on an independent feature in the editing room. Uh, This was a a film uh, called P.S. Your Cat is Dead that was uh, produced and written and directed and starring uh, Steve Gutenberg, the mm-hmm. actor, and he had optioned a, a play and a novel and had uh, uh, turned it into this movie. And I learned m- so much in that four and a half months in the editing room that really refined my thinking about structure more than reading the 20,000 scripts. Right. Uh, so I, I think spending some time in the editing room, if you possibly can do that, is a big boost in your understanding of, of how stories are actually made. You know, there's the script, but then there's another writing process that goes on in the editing room, and, and that was uh, that was really fascinating. Oh, yeah. I think editors are, like, incredible storytellers. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, they have to be, and they have yeah. the ability to take something and, uh, you know, completely change the genre yeah. and make a, a, a serious movie into a comedy or vice versa or change who is the main character by the yep. selection of... The shots, so... Uh, Aaron Spelling was known for that. He was known yeah. for in the editing room, like being able to go, this should go there, that should go there, and then suddenly it'd be totally where it needs to be. Yeah, this is yeah. What, I, what I like to do. It's certainly the impression I like to create about yeah. myself is that I can sit back and sort of study a, a structure uh-huh. and be able to say, this goes here, and yeah. that would be better if you uh, planted it earlier or whatever the adjustments are. I, I like to make... The big uh, effect, you know, yes. where, where maybe you find one idea that puts the whole script into focus. Yep. Maybe it's uh, defining what is the polarity in the script, that yes. every script is polarized love. between uh, love and death or duty and uh, love or uh, uh, jealousy and hate or, you know, revenge versus mercy. The, every story has some kind of engine uh, like that of, of uh, polarization. And if you can identify that, then a lot of the other choices become easier. I or, Yeah. Or, or help them understand what is the theme. What's the movie really about? Yeah. So uh, those those are the kind of big fixes that I like. And then there's, you know, a million little things yes. you can do. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I think that's great. What would you say are some of the biggest story mistakes being made in films, say, over the last five years? Well, I, I you just have to complain a little bit as a moviegoer. Movie <laughs> yeah, um, I agree. Uh, that, that for me, as a consumer of the movies, I'm interested in the ideas and I'm interested in the B plot. I'm interested in the social things and the emotional things that are going on. And so many of the movies, and now I'm talking about the big blockbusters, the mm-hmm. 100 and $200 million films, they just sort of stop all of that mm-hmm. uh, in the last 30 minutes or so, and it becomes sort of a, a ballistic thing where there's just uh, bullets flying this way and that. I, I saw Man of Steel, and I love Superman. I grew up on it, and I love certain aspects of the movie. But for the last 30 or 40 minutes, 
Superman could have been played by a blue bowling ball for mm-hmm. all of the emotional uh, demand there was on him. He was just a, a projectile yes. uh, flying through the air. And uh, so th- I, I back far away from movies when they uh, begin, you know, uh, going down that, that particular road. That's interesting you say that because I've made the comment that I think over the last several years that the majority movies of movies are 20 to 30 minutes too long. And how frustrated I get as a consumer and an audience member that had they ended sooner, the audience would have been so much more satisfied and fulfilled. But it was the, the extension where there wasn't the emotional pull that leads to not a great result, which, yeah. you know... Yeah, you can you can definitely feel that in the theater. That, yeah, that sense of okay, we've had plenty, mm-hmm. we got it. Yes, and uh, it's time to go. You get know? in, uh, get out. Right. <laughs> yeah, I I grew up in the culture of the drive-in movies. Yes, and people even back then would let you know when yeah. the movie was over. They would turn on their engines and hang up the speaker and yep. drive away. You're right. And there's still maybe ten minutes of the movie going, but they knew hey, the guy got the girl and they defeated the monster, and so let's go home. You're right. So, I remember. You know, Oh, I so remember driving movies. Uh, Okay, so let's see. If you were to single out three key story tools that you have found have led writers to to tremendous success, what would they be? Well, I think, uh, you know, remembering the characters and the human aspects uh, and and putting that first or uh, in, in top position at some point in the development process uh, you you have to try and make it uh, authentically grounded in some human experience, and that's tough with some studio assignments because they just say, "Well, a volcano is blowing up in Los Angeles, and you know we'll put some characters in, and you know uh, work it out later." And, yep. uh, and you get that feeling sometimes, but um, I, I think that's that's a, a key thing. Um, there's a, a sense I don't see enough of in scripts of. Taking the time to set me up in the beginning. Uh, there's such an impatience now to get started and dive into the action. Uh, I like to build a world, take a little time, and uh, get to know a character in their ordinary environment and kind of you know create a, uh, a story there before slamming them mm-hmm. into the uh, what I call the special world. Yes. So uh, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, those those are, are two things, and then there's the the thing at, at the end of movies um, of tying up the loose ends. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sort of a traditionalist that way, sort of classical. I like to tidy things up and to uh, resolve things, and I don't need to have every question answered. That's kind of deadly. But um, I do like to see uh, the rewards and the punishments handed out in in some way that makes sense. And you have to leave room for a whole universe of um, sort of European films or art house films where they're not playing that game and they're more interested in uh, mystifying you or leaving you guessing about what what it all meant. But uh, I like, you know, simple stories for simple people and, uh, you know, something that makes sense and has some Meaning, even if you have to come out and say, this is what it meant, Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not against that. I I think it's useful to to really kind of, in a way, spell out the theme or uh, give people something to take away so that that it it does have a feeling it meant something. Yes. I I, excellent advice. Uh, As far as 
successful films in the last few years. What would you say are some of the key contributing factors to a film being successful? Well, um, I'll just take one example. Little film um, that succeeded in transcending its national origins, and, and that was a film called I'm going to say this wrong, I'm sure, but it's Les Intouchables, oh. uh, the untouchables, we would say, in English. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. And that was excellent. This, this made it into art house distribution mm-hmm. in the States, and it was a, a little movie uh, of the, the kind of thing that we used to make in the 60s, uh, a, a, a human story about two people. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, one was uh, a paralyzed uh, critic who was... Uh, struggling to develop a romance and dealing with the fact that he was paralyzed. And then the other was his caretaker. And the caretaker was kind of a wild guy who uh, wasn't particularly interested in changing anybody's life. And the, But the two of them found common ground and uh, developed a great relationship. And just this simple little story was... Uh, uh, so much more rewarding than things, you know. It probably cost between five and ten million dollars our money to produce, uh, but so much more satisfying than ten hundred million or two hundred million dollar epics these yeah. days. Do you know it's fascinating that you bring up that movie because my my mother is currently battling cancer, and and that movie came to me as we say things come yeah. to you. When I was on one of my flights uh, back and uh, from from travels, and I remember that it spoke to me. Yeah. It just made me look at caretakers, and I was a caretaker, so I am a caretaker, and and so in, as well as the people who when when the kids weren't there. Who was going to be watching? Like there was such yeah. an emotional pull to that movie, as a result of what was going on in many of our lives, is yeah. where where we're recognizing our parents are growing older, and who's going to care for them when we're not there, and giving like a whole new light to what that relationship could be. Yeah, to and, each and other. I I felt things uh, because yeah. of that, as you say, it illuminated yes. uh, issues. Uh, another one, uh, similar lines was uh, uh, this movie Amour, yes. uh, which dealt with uh, 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 an aging couple and yep. their, their difficulties. Yep. Uh, and that was, you know, something that, that uh, gave me a little insight into possible futures yes. and made me reflect on things. Uh, another one, and this is reaching back a ways, but yeah. uh, one of the films that stands out over the last five or ten years right. for its emotional impact on me was, oddly enough, Mamma Mia. Huh? Mamma yeah. Mia had this strange effect that when I came out of the theater with my wife, she turned to me and she said, I don't know why, but I was crying through the whole movie. And, you know, uh, I, being a man, I was trying to hide the fact that my sweater was actually wet from mm-hmm. the tears running Aww. down my cheeks. And it wasn't because there was anything sad yeah. in the movie. It, they, these were tears of joy. Joy. And, and, yeah. and just the, the joy, where, where was that coming from? In this silly movie with you know Pierce Brosnan pretending he could sing and uh, you know people dancing around, 
it was that they were all having so much fun doing it. You yeah. know, it was obvious that they were having a ball, and that transmitted off the screen. Yeah. And so I felt something because they were feeling something, and I was in the right place maybe at the right time. Yeah. But uh, some people walked out of the theater, so uh, it was as soon as Pierce Brosnan started to sing. So uh, <laughs> not everybody has the same experience. I love that. But, uh, but that, one, that one really woke me up to uh, the, the power of these things to trigger these organs of the body to yeah. have have these uh, sometimes very strong reactions. And that's what I go to the movies for. I agree with you, know. you. I think when you see films that hit you, as you mentioned, too, that hit me at a time when I needed to feel them and, and, and really illuminated even more because of what was going on in my life. Have you seen the movie? And this, for me, was a movie that just hit me in a way... And it was the filmmaker's first written and directed movie, The Lives of Others. Oh, actually, I haven't seen that. Yeah, and many have recommended that. So but yeah, yeah. amazing. Mm-hmm. And and the fascinating thing is, like, with that movie, I think, and I've seen it, like, four or five times because wow. I became, it won Best Foreign Film in, like, 2007. And I remember just, like, feeling like the development of that story was so incredible incredibly well done the characters the story arcs the theme like how it all pulled together Mm -hmm. was just unbelievable so I it it is a fascinating thing like I'm with you when you talk about when you talked about in your webinars how something from your body should excrete something Mm -hmm. you know when you're feeling pure joy Mm -hmm. tears something in your throat, something in your heart, like it, in in the idea of, I think when that happens, I have to always, and I tell writers to always think about, like, notice your own reaction. Oh, yeah. Why are you crying? What is it hitting in you? And how can you reproduce that mm-hmm. in some way? Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in this, yeah. in, in how you sort of catalog mm-hmm. uh, where the triggers are and yeah. what kinds of scenes trigger strong reactions. That may be different from person to person, but I'll give you uh, one category for me is scenes where the hero is in big trouble and isolated and mm-hmm. standing alone against a really powerful adversary. And then one person comes and stands beside him or her. Yes. And then it's like the two of us are yes. standing against it. And it's not much, but here's two of us. And then a third one comes. Now it's three. And then four and five. And then pretty soon the whole town is standing up against the bullies. And that never fails yeah. to cause a, a, a strong reaction. I get choked up or yeah. tears, tears come to my the eyes with, when I see that yeah. uh, that sort of reversal of of power, yeah. or when someone in a movie who's been downtrodden stands up, mm-hmm. or when someone who's been hard-hearted shows a softer side, yes. um, we sort of melt a little bit yeah. uh, and, or feel understanding or sorry for them. So um, I, I'm, I'm trying to observe those things, yes. um, see what... Uh, what what elements uh, cause those those kind of effects? You you had mentioned earlier something gave you a little uh, shiver, right? And uh, those I used to think were just terms, just expressions that yeah. we use, but they're not. And you're right to tell your yeah. students to pay attention to yeah. those. Uh, when I was working on The Lion King, I threw out an idea in a meeting 
um, about uh, in the opening scene, the circle of life, uh, the shaman baboon or whatever he is holds up the baby. And I said, wouldn't it be cool if like in the Catholic Church, a ray of light came down, you know, like through the stained glass window. And I said, out of the cloud, say, a ray of light will come down. And immediately the uh, animators began drawing that image and they put it in the film. But also everybody in the room sort of jolted. They all sort of shivered when I said that. And I felt it. I felt something, you know, uh, like a shiver down my back. And so I said, that was meaningful. Let's remember those things. And when that happens in a story meeting, it means that's the right idea. Yeah, I agree. Write that one down. That's a keeper. Because if it gives you that physical reaction, then uh, your, your body's telling you something. Yes. There's something that's working. Yeah. I totally agree. Now, moving into the idea of television, because mm-hmm. television storytelling has been, in my opinion, far better than the feature world in the last oh, several yeah. years. Yeah, it's a runaway. I yes. mean, there's the, just uh, no question uh, about it that all the creativity, for some reason, drifted there. Yes. Um, it's, a, it's a real uh, golden age. And uh, it's interesting that there is a certain commonality to it that people are noticing. The sort of the shows all seem to work when they're based on a bad boy of some kind or or, or, or a very flawed person Mm -hmm. like Nurse Jackie, um, who is their 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 life is a train wreck, but they're trying to be good. No matter who it is, Brian Cranston or James Gandolfini playing these uh, dark characters, but with always the sense that they want to be good. They want to yes. please their mother or they want to, you know, be a good family man while in the middle of all this uh, terrible behavior. So that seems to be a powerful that's working. formula that's That that's goes working. in with yeah. what you talked about as far as the characters that you're drawn toward. What are some of your favorite TV shows right now? Well, I'm very prone to just for amusement and enjoyment. I like Thirty Rock. Right. Uh, that that just right. you know is is like a default position. I can right. always go there. I love that. Uh, I'm enjoying the uh, History Channel series about the Vikings. Yeah, I've heard. My favorite uh, film as a kid was the uh, one of the sources of inspiration for that series was a movie called The Vikings with mm-hmm. Tony Curtis and Kirk Douglas and Ernest Borgnine. And um, that's a kind of a template movie that uh, I, I've studied pretty thoroughly. Uh, but it's all based on uh, original uh, Scandinavian legends and a, a, apparently a real person named Ragnar who is the hero of the History Channel thing. And uh, they just got me with one scene in yeah. the first episode, I think it was, they went on a raid to England and they were coming back from the raid and they just showed a shot of the hero Ragnar sitting on the deck and he was kind of pleased with himself, like, man, I pulled that off. And there was no dialogue, just the guy sitting on the deck kind of grinning to himself, uh-huh. but man, I was in. And yeah. I just said, "This, I love this guy, I love this world, yeah. and I'm, I'm on board for this adventure. I love that you pointed that out. I think that's great. So did the, now, in going to the writer's journey and like what led you to write the book and Michael Weezy Productions to publish it, was that stemmed from the memo, and and then that came organically after the memo? Yeah, these things just developed naturally. Uh, the memo uh, was something that I used in my classes at UCLA Extension. I taught there in the writer's program, which is a great program. 
and uh, it expanded. I added, doubled it, and tripled it, and finally had enough material that uh, uh, it was clear it, it could be a book. Right. Uh, and I tried uh, all the conventional publishing routes. I had an agent. I went to New York. I took meetings, and it was just either ahead of its time or um, was perceived as we already know this. You know, we know Joseph Campbell, and you know, you're not telling us anything new. But it took this uh, publisher, Michael Weezy, who was just getting started at that time, right. uh, doing books uh, about uh, production, really, about marketing and financing and so forth. Uh, he had the vision, and yeah. he, he saw it as I saw it and gave me the break. So everything else has kind of developed out of that. I have to admit, I, I, am, I give so much love and gratitude to Michael for having his vision and trusting his vision and trusting his authors to explore. Uh, it, it, it is truly a gift. His book, Onward and Upward, I've loved. Isn't it cool? You know, <laughs> so he, good. It, it's so filled <laughs> yes. with experiences. You can't believe yeah. he was like a Forrest Gump. He I know. <laughs> everywhere in the 60s and 70s. He's with Dolly. He's with Buckminster Fuller. Yes. He's hanging out with the people doing the dolphin experiments. And he, he had his, his hands into everything. I agree. The whole Earth catalog. was Mind uh, blowing. Just mind blowing. So I know there's three different editions of the writer's journey. So for writers who are like, okay, I'm one of the very few people in the world who haven't read this book. What would you say are, what is the difference between the three different editions? Is it better just to go to the third edition? Is there something that people should look at every edition? Well, I think it's it's just added more stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the if you can find one of the first ones, uh, right. it's a nice tidy little handbook. Right. The second one we added some material and changed some of the film examples, but we really went um, uh, we turned a corner with the third edition because I wanted to make it um, just a nicer object, and, mm-hmm. and so. Uh, spent a lot of time on uh, commissioning illustrations uh, by an artist friend of mine who did uh, these beautiful pen and ink uh, illustrations and uh, added some material. And there's some of the things that you've already mentioned, uh, the idea of polarity, the idea of catharsis, the idea that stories are alive and have their own sort of consciousness, which I do believe they have their own objectives. Uh, and sort of have uh, an important role to play within the story, the story itself. So uh, I, I've added quite a lot of material, and I think that that sort of points you to the uh, the third edition. And I think the idea, you know, what came to me that was interesting, like your polarity idea, like yeah. certain things will speak to me. Like I, I noticed you mentioned in your webinar, and I mentioned in my book, Change Your Story, Change Your Life, the thing that Michael Haig had said with regards to story begins when an undeserved misfortune happens to the central character. Mm-hmm. Um, um, uh, with you, I think when I, I mean, so much of what you've taught, like I glob onto, but, but the most recent thing with the polarity was, I think, like as I'm sitting here thinking about, suddenly I saw a story in a different way. Mm-hmm. As soon as I mm-hmm. heard you really introduce that and start to, and and suddenly I'm watching story and oh my god, it's it's there, it's everywhere, it's in 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 wow. like when we think mm. of it, it, it like I love that. Like I think my whole goal as a teacher is hitting the aha moments mm-hmm. that is going to open up their world to see it. 
Yeah, this is uh, an interesting thing because there are so many ways to enjoy stories and to perceive them and to analyze them and work with them uh, and kind of uh, use as metaphors. Uh, You could uh, look at a a story and and actually get a lot out of comparing the the process of writing a story to building a piston engine or building a boat or uh, uh, any number of of activities that that might parallel it. But this idea of polarity Mm -hmm. was a big insight uh, for me, at some point, I realized that all stories uh, are sort of driven by these engines where there's some titanic force uh, in, at struggle with another titanic force, uh, whether it's the men versus the women or the older generation versus the younger or uh, the establishment versus the rebels or, you know, there's always something yes. uh, that... that uh, makes the story dynamic, that makes it uh, an energy system where there's power struggling back and forth. And uh, that seems to attract the audience, almost like magnetism or something. So uh, that's that's one of the things I'm interested in exploring these and days. And I, I think, too, like when you think about our lives, like we when we think about marriage and mm-hmm. we think you're taking two different worldviews and you're forcing them together. And we have to make sense of how come they don't see the world like I see the world. Um, when you look at your parents' view versus the child's view and how come we see things differently. I remember um, in Mad Men when uh, Dom was having an affair with Miss Farrell and she said a little boy came in and said to her, how come you don't see blue like I see blue? And I love that. Because it's like that, I feel like, is ingrained in all of us. How come you don't see things like I see things? And the idea of exploring that and finding a happy medium within the story as it comes together, I think, just makes so much sense. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a, a, a sort of a joyful uh, uh, paradox yes. about it that... On the one hand, uh, we do see things kind of in the same way. We yeah. understand good and evil and more or less and uh, want the hero to have a, a happy outcome. But then every person has their unique yep. experience of it and their unique view, and that has value. So uh, it's, it's somewhere in, in, in between those, yeah. those two extremes. Yeah, no, I think that is excellent. When you think about uh, your own life and how... Like when I think about your writing, the third edition, and when I think about the webinar I saw you do with the writer's story and the idea of story moving through the chakras, mm-hmm. it, it for me, th- I think I value it so much because I think y- you're at a place in your life where you're just absorbing and it's just like coming through you and, and, and it's all of a sudden everything's clicking and making sense. Would you say that's true? Yeah, it's a funny thing because uh, in a way there's nothing really new going on for me except the courage to talk about these things because all of this stuff had already uh, hit me. It Mm -hmm. it hit me pretty hard as a young person in my late 20s when I first started really chewing on these things. Uh, but these days, I'm getting more courage about uh, just coming out and, and 
saying it. It, it. Some of it sounds really far out. Like you mentioned this thing I like to say to shock people these days, that if a story doesn't make two or more organs of your body squirt fluids, it's no damn good. Thank you. <laughs> and that's my, you know, that's Vogler's rule. So, right. Uh, but I mean it. That, yeah. that Literally, the stories, if they're working, they're supposed to affect the organs of the body and actually make the organs uh, em- emit uh, fluids, generate these... Uh, uh, these uh, liquids with the glands, mm-hmm. you know, and, and all of these things we're talking about, shivering and uh, laughing and crying, all of those things are triggered by, uh, by symbols and, and uh, images and human emotions working on these, uh, on these organs. So uh, I'm, I'm getting, I have the guts now, I think, to talk about yeah. this. Things. Yeah, and I loved that because I remember in the webinar when you said it, I was like, wow. But the thing that I loved about that is it stayed with me. Mm-hmm. Like I, like it, you, you visually imagine it, you know what I mean? And you know that we all go through it. And so I think, and, and I also, another thing I noticed about your webinar, and you can get his webinar at the writer's store that he had done the, that had already been recorded, What's the name of the webinar? It was uh, Organic Storytelling. Organic Storytelling. Yeah, yeah. That's what I'm calling it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I loved, and that immediately drew me to it. Mm-hmm. As soon as I saw, obviously, your name and then the idea of the title, I was immediately drawn to it. All right. So winding down, um, I want to give people a sense of how they can access you how how you can elevate their storytelling, whether it be one on one, whether it be in a seminar, whether it be in a webinar. Can you give people a sense of do you work with writers one on one now? Can somebody go to your website and say, I want to hire Chris to work with me on this? When is your next seminar or story conference? Well, uh, these days I'm doing less of the uh, of the one-on-ones. It's still uh, uh, theoretically possible to right. get through to me on uh, ChristopherVogler.com. That's uh, one portal that that you can access me. But um, I think the best thing is to go to one of my workshops. My mm-hmm. workshops now are either two or three days long. Uh, and I, I'm calling it the essence of story or a master class in storytelling, something like that. Excellent. And most of these are given in Europe, but I will be doing some uh, in the L.A. area in the fall. So uh, ChristopherVogler.com is the, the best place to find uh, information about these, uh, these upcoming things. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Um, so let's see. In winding down on story, what would you say is anything maybe that we didn't cover that you and how about an aha moment that maybe you hit in story from say the way you looked at story at the beginning of your career to the way you see story now? Well, I would say that I've gone through a big evolution because um, my initial attraction to the business was that I wanted to be like Spielberg or Lucas. I I wanted to amaze people. That was my objective. And I now have evolved to a place where I think it's much better and maybe nobler calling to just uh, make them laugh or cry a little bit. You know, amazement we can do. We have the effects to do that and maybe too much. Uh, but I think just the simple thing of uh, telling a story that makes somebody laugh or m- makes them a little more conscious of who they are, yeah. a little more awake, uh, that has uh, more value. And, and so I'm moving these days towards that 
kind of uh, simple storytelling. I still have big ambitions for you know elaborate productions, but um, I, I I want them to move people in these organic ways yes. first, and then then all the rest of it will follow. I love ending on that note. The idea of moving to a higher consciousness yeah. in the greater good and and recognizing the gift and making people feel, uh, I think is is fantastic. This has been absolutely incredible. I was pinching myself on the way over here. I was just like going, all right, how much do I love that this is what I do for a living? <laughs> Such a gift. So thank you so much for spending this time and imparting your knowledge and incredible advice. And uh, I, I, I am, I am very very grateful so i want to thank all of you for joining us i know you are as excited as i am about this and i i can't wait for everybody to listen to this interview and and hear all the great things that chris had to share so upcoming event wise we have uh the next story conference will be in September Story Expo. You can look on my website, www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com, for more information on it. And uh, let me think. I think that. I think I'll be there too. Oh, yes. (laughs) And Chris will be there. You have to come see Chris. Yes, that's the Story Expo. And I think that is all I can think of right now for the upcoming events. So just came off of a whirlwind of travel that was absolutely incredible. And uh, again, I feel very grateful to be sharing the gift of story and seeing story from different cultures uh, in different countries. It has been spectacular. So I want to thank all of you for joining us. And this is Jen Grisanti of StoryWise Podcast. You've been listening to StoryWise with Jen Grisanti. If you're looking to get to the next step in your career and need a guide who has been there and knows what it takes, go to www.jengrisanticonsultancy.com. On the website, you can also find the latest on writing programs, feature film festivals, and other writing competitions. This podcast was recorded at the studios of Icebox Logic.